Honestly, I was fortunate because I got put in a global role. Okay, of course. Yeah. And it was global accounts at PeopleSoft, and I had Craig Conway in my accounts. Yeah. So I'm this, you know, mid-30s, young executive, flying around the world and having Craig, like, sitting in meetings with me. So I, I got indoctrinated to the C-suite, hard and heavy, <laughs> very early on. We had some big global accounts, and Craig was intimately involved in those accounts. That's one thing I really learned from him. I think at a high, you know, a high level with my career, I've been blessed that I've had three legends that I've been pretty close to. Craig, early on at PeopleSoft, you know, and then I moved over with uh, uh, Tom Siebel at C3. Very close to Bill McDermott still today at SAP. Very good. And all three of them have heavy influence on my career. Welcome to 14 Minutes of SaaS, the show where you can listen to the stories and opinions of founders of the world's most remarkable SaaS scale-ups. This is episode 115 of 14 Minutes of SaaS, the first of three episodes where I chat with Ted Krantz, CEO of App Annie, a mobile data and analytics platform. Ted is what I call a refounder because he's overseen a complete reimagination of the brand, something that was well overdue. Employee numbers have held pretty steady in the last six months through COVID. About 77% of employees and former employees would recommend working with App Annie to a friend, well above average. And Ted, enjoys a healthy approval rating of 80% on Glassdoor. That's well north of the average rating, which is, if you're curious, 69%. Since our interview, App Annie has launched Ascend, which is the upgraded new version of their acquisition Libring for advertising analytics. Overall, the company has more than 1 million users and over 1,100 clients. Ted Grant, CEO of App Annie, mobile marketing data, and analytics platform here on 14 Minutes of SaaS. And we're here in the Web Summit. Great to have you on the show, Ted. Delighted to join you, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. Um, I'd love to know a little bit about where you came from, uh, where you grew up, your life, uh, prior, let's say, all the way from childhood, prior to uh, you entering the kind of the B2B, B2B software world of PeopleSoft. Oh, got it. Yeah, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska which I kind of describe as a great place to be from. Great family values, grew up in Omaha, which is six, 700,000 people. My dad was a policeman, and so we moved to Dallas when he was, I guess I was 12 or 13, so just as I moved into middle school. And then I spent the better part of 30 years basically in Dallas. Played some sports when I was a child. I was one of those not gifted athletes, but very competitive. So I played football, I did a little boxing, and I did a little bit of baseball. Ah, yeah. I thought you were a footballer when I saw you, actually. Yeah, I played football. Yeah, I played okay. quarterback. Okay. Oh. But I played in Texas, and in those days, they ran the wishbone. And I was a throwing quarterback. So. Oh, what's the wishbone? Wishbone's a lot of handing off. Yeah, so, so the game has changed now. There's gotcha. a lot of passing, but when I played, it was a yeah. lot of lot of running. Okay, okay. So it was yeah. a, a little bit more like rugby, perhaps. It was. Okay. Yeah, that would okay. be a good analogy. So tell me a bit more about uh, when you moved to Dallas. Yeah. Um, did you enjoy moving there? Did you miss your home? How did that, how did that work out for you? You were 12 or 13? 12 or 13. Yeah. I love Texas. Okay. Indoctrinated really quickly. Football was a big portion of that. It's a big football state. Yeah. Built my... Nucleus of friends I that I still have today, actually, yeah. Went to the University of Texas at Dallas. I worked my way through school. I paid for my entire ride. 
Wow. So I was the first in my family to go to college. And so I bartended my way through school. Fantastic. Same yeah. as myself. Uh, yeah. Yeah. First generation as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, usually you have to work a little bit harder in the States. You do. Uh, just because yeah. of the, the, the cost of. Uh, I was bored in high school. I didn't really have to try academically until college. And then I was like really excited and motivated. Fantastic. But not so much as a student in high school. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually the same. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't wait to get out of school. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if moving is something to do. I moved around as well, but mm -hmm. uh, changed schools as well. Um, so. Uh, you have a pretty impressive kind of uh, 12 years um, period from around 2000, I believe, mm -hmm. um, in PeopleSoft, uh, SAP, and C3, mm -hmm. um, in similar roles, uh, building sales teams. Yes. And, and uh, I grew up through the revenue ranks, yes. Again, bartend my way through college, and my degree was in economics and finance. Ah. And so I got my degree and I started interviewing with the finance companies. And I thought, man, I just wasted like five years of my life. I'm not sure that this is for me. And so I took some of the, you know, kind of classic personality profiles and testing and where you should go career-wise. And sales looked pretty good on paper. And I interviewed with a software company called Egghead Software uh, early on in 1990. And that's when I started in uh, software. Okay. Awesome. So I worked my way through a lot of different mid-sized companies specialized a little bit in customer relationship management before that was really a cool space okay. by Mark Benioff and the like. Yeah. And then I got into the enterprise companies with PeopleSoft in 2000. So when you say, the, uh, oh, CRM, you mean being a yeah, cool customer, space from, yeah. from, uh, from Salesforce? Exactly. Yeah. And you, do you it know was it? cool before Salesforce, but Benioff made it much cooler. So growing up through the sales ranks, it's a performance-based world. It's very different than the world today. Back when I was growing through the ranks, there were more people than jobs. Now it's the opposite. Yeah. So you really had to work your way and distinguish yourself through execution and performance. And so by the time I got to PeopleSoft, I had you know, the better part of 10 years of kind of growing my skills. And I got very fortunate to move into a leadership position in a global role, which Great. was a ton of fun. Yeah. You know, I had more exposure than I thought I was signing up for, actually. <laughs> Craig Conway was running PeopleSoft at the time. That was a big thing, no code on the client, and pure HTML, which was really disruptive. And, you know, Larry Ellison didn't like that value prop very much. No. And he lost a couple of good people. Uh, he, he absolutely did. <laughs> who built some amazing companies. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, working your way through that, I mean, um, there's a thing that I, I mean, I went back to Salesforce and did a little bit of sales for a few years. And, uh, but one of the things that struck me uh, is some people are probably born to it. I did very well at it, but. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt I couldn't do it for my life. And uh, it, part of the reason was this thing where it all starts again yeah. every year. Right, right. And the, and the every kind of, quarter. Yeah, yeah. E exactly. You could say every, you, <laughs> right. can, you can break it up whatever way. Yeah. Um, that takes a certain amount of stamina. It does. Um, as there, you know, were you happy <clears throat> when, you know, when you reached a certain point where you got up into the C-suite and stuff like that? Did you feel, I've done my, I've done my stint? Or do you still find yourself getting involved in large deals? Do you, do you find you can't, you know, do you find it hard to leave that part of your life alone? That's an interesting perspective. I don't feel that way. Okay. I have released from the deals. I do get more into the metrics, but I've, I've got a great sales leader that, that handles the execution side, so I'm fortunate there. And I'm really not fascinated by that anyway. I've always been driven more by strategy. Okay. So I think for me, it's, a, it's a, an easier release than it might be for some. 
Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but would you not feel uh, when you were working, I'll take you back to, to PeopleSoft, for sure. example, um, that on a kind of a, a month by month, quarter by quarter basis, it's it's more tactical it is. than strategic yes. um, well, but at that even, stage in your career? Yeah, I, honestly, I was fortunate because I got put in a global role. Okay, of course. And yeah. it was global accounts at PeopleSoft, and I had Craig Conway in my accounts. Yeah. So I'm this you know mid-30s, young executive, flying around the world and having Craig like sitting in meetings with me. So I, I got indoctrinated to the C-suite hard and heavy <laughs> very early on. We had some big global accounts and Craig was intimately involved in those accounts. That's one thing I really learned from him. I think at a high, you know, a high level with my career, I've been blessed that I've had three legends that I've been pretty close to. Craig early on at PeopleSoft, you know, and then I moved over with uh, uh, Tom Siebel at C3. Very close to Bill McDermott still today at SAP. Very good. And all three of them have heavy influence on my career. Wow, yeah. wow. That's amazing. So you've had yeah, exposure. So I've learned from some legends, and they're all very different. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And maybe not, you know, dynamic-wise, it's pretty interesting. They're all a little bit, <laughs> come at the game a little bit differently. Yeah. Would one of them have been more formative for you than the other? Was there one where you had They were a all so formative. Oh, I, right. I put them all equally for different reasons. Okay. At okay. PeopleSoft, it was, I mean, I'm early in my career, and I'm full-blown global. Okay. Flying all over the place, orchestrating big global deals. Yeah. So for me, that was a dimension of really kind of globalizing how I think. Sure. And sure. framing my game in a more global, you know, theater reality versus a lot of sales leaders that are very North American centric or a particular region. So I got into global very early on in my career. I think that's the big distinguishing factor. Sure. Plus, I have a passion for running those strategic accounts because I learned a lot from Craig and I saw how you know, a big time CEO is so intimately involved on those key critical accounts. Yeah. Maybe not on the whole business, but when it came to those critical accounts, he was in the middle of it with you. That was a little bit different. At SAP, I learned something different with, with Bill McDermott. I was fortunate to kind of come in when he was still running the Americas. Now he was global CEO, now he's over at ServiceNow. Yes. And I learned a ton from yes. Bill on executing at scale and also the style by which you lead. Some of his leadership characteristics are really unique. It's highly motivating. It's very personal. You have deep, rich relationships, and you get it done together, and okay. you enjoy the ride. Fantastic. Man. Well, enjoying the ride is always a very important thing as well. It's hard to always find that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Especially with, in the high pressure. Right. Yeah. And then with Tom at uh, C3, I was very fortunate to learn from a legend up close and personal yeah. on something that's entrepreneurial. Yeah. Right? With C3 and him having huge success at, sale, or at Siebel and then trying to take a run at IoT, and now it's an AI play and it's doing really well. Yeah, yeah. He did a pivot which most companies can't pull off. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, he's obviously a friend, but uh, let me ask you, um, Tom with Siebel. Uh, yes. So I'm not a believer that Salesforce killed Siebel, by the way, at all. Oh. I, I believe, I actually He doesn't wrote, believe that, yeah. I wrote an article and actually I, I think, uh, <laughs> so I think every company develops its internal David. I yeah. have this theory because companies like humans have yeah. a life cycle. They'll all go to the ground no matter who they are mm -hmm. um, at some point. Yes. But the great companies, they have a long tenure. That's the difference. And they shine for a certain period of that great tenure. But I believe that all Goliaths develop an internal David. Yeah. And it's that moment in time when for whatever reason, they stop listening, they stop innovating, they stop understanding the market. Maybe they stop talking to their customers uh, and maybe some good competition comes along at the same time. And I believe that's what happened to Siebel. They didn't cannibalize um, their own massive contracts because they had a war chest. They could have built what Salesforce had built. Oh, without question. How, how do you feel? Do you feel that they made that error too? Well, I think that there was some 
dismissal subconsciously of mid-market because you know, Siebel was built with the best and finest accounts. He established CRM as an Huge. enterprise domain. Without yep. Tom, there would not be Salesforce, Oh yeah, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. And so I think his thought leadership is really what kind of made CRM what it is today and influenced Salesforce and gave Salesforce the lower part of the market. At the same time, too, in all fairness, you know, Oracle did acquire Siebel. And some of the hands on the wheel were no longer Tom's. Yes. And it was, it was Oracle's domain from there, and that's when Salesforce entered. Yeah. So I have a great deal of respect for how Tom thinks strategically. I don't think I've worked for a smarter individual. There, I've been in enterprise sales for a long time in the software game. Absolutely. There's no better product expert and sales expert than Mr. Siebel. Than Tom Siebel. That's okay, right. okay. In the next episode, part two of three, Ted talks about the substantial learning curve of moving from a leadership role in traditional B2B SaaS sales to the C-suite and eventually CEO of a digital marketing company. And another learning curve involving working with a much higher percentage of millennials in these new roles. You've been listening to 14 Minutes of SaaS. Thanks to Mike Quill for his creativity and problem-solving skills, to Ketsu for the music, and to Anders Getz for the transcript. This episode was brought to you by me, Stephen Cummins. If you enjoyed the podcast, please don't forget to share it with your network, subscribe to the series, and of course, give the show a rating.